Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasad Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. It's my great pleasure to be here today with my friend and colleague, Dr. Bonnie Evans from Queen Mary University of London. My name is Aisha Nathu, and today we're going to discuss Bonnie's new book, The Metamorphosis of Autism, A History of Child Development in Britain. So first of all, I'd just like to ask you how you came to write this phenomenal 500-page book on, on autism. What brought you to this, this topic? Thank you very much, Aisha. Um, I think that there were many threads or intellectual journeys that led me to write this book. The first and uh, the most important or significant one for me was an interest in the history of human sciences and in particular the history of childhood and child development. So I developed that interest through reading the work of Michel Foucault and Nicholas Rose and others who'd raised these really fundamental questions around where do our contemporary understandings of selfhood, identity, and psychological truth originate from. Uh, now, in the work of these writers, they'd obviously addressed um, issues of childhood. Nicholas Rose, in particular, looks quite a lot at um, child psychological sciences and addressing these issues. But I felt that there was a lot more that could be said about the history of child psychology and developmental sciences and their influence on uh, contemporary notions of identity within our sort of wider social and political structures. And I wanted to address these issues through very solid archival research. So my supervisor at the time, uh, Professor John Forrester, was very keen on me doing this, and he uh, said this a lot, I needed to go into the archives, get into the archives. And so I looked at the archives of the Maudsley Hospital, uh, the Tavistock Clinic, the Brixton Child Guidance Clinic, uh, the UK uh, National Government Archives. Uh, so I spent a lot of time in the archives. And uh, I, I think that was very important to the work that then came out of that. And in my archival research, I was very much influenced by the work of Harry Hendrick, um, and Matthew Thompson and others who've written on the history of child welfare and child rights. And I very much wanted to locate this history of developmental sciences within a wider story of uh, the development of children's rights as individual subjects. Is autism um, one of many topics that you could have chosen or is there something specific to autism that um, makes your argument um, either um, argue against or uh, to, to sort of be embedded within Foucauldian or Nicholas Rose's theories? Now, I didn't actually intend to write about autism uh, some people find that very surprising. It wasn't my initial objective when writing the book, but what I discovered through looking at the history 
of child psychological sciences is that this concept, autism, had always been fundamental to framing uh, the psychological sciences. It's a critical concept um, to thinking about the early stages of development, and it is from the very early origins of child psychology in the work of Piaget um, and other writers, it's critical. Uh, and it continues to hold this critical role in framing our ideas of, de of development right up until um, the present day. But there is a big change in the meaning of the word that happens in the middle decades of the 20th century. And that was something that became evident to me in the research and I thought was really fundamental in the construction of the argument um, in the book. And at the time I was writing, you know, autism was um, uh, becoming, or more people were becoming aware of the diagnosis of autism, of the category of autism. There was some interesting work that was being done then on the social construction of autism, for example, the work of Magia Holman-Nadsen um, and Ian Hacking and others. And I wanted to, you know, I was interested in these questions as well, but I wanted to address them um, as I said, using this kind of deep archival historical um, engage, engagement with sources around um, real cases, real children who'd attended um, child clinics from the early decades of the 20th century. So early on, I figured out that autism was very important to this wider history of the developmental sciences. So perhaps you could just summarise for us um, your central arguments. So as I mentioned, the main argument of the book is that there's this massive change. In fact, it's a complete reversal in the meaning of autism in the middle decades of the 20th century. And this is concurrent with a much bigger shift in policy approaches to child rights and in the organisation of educational services for children. So in the early 20th century, autism features uh, within a wider uh, psychoanalytic theory of the drive for human relationships. And so uh, when Jean Piaget uses it, for example, he uses it in that context. And these theories on the development of early relationships are very important to the establishment of early child protection policies, the work of welfare officers and child guidance clinics in the early 20th century. And along with intelligence testing, they form the psychological knowledge that supports uh, the foundation of early child rights or, or lack of. Uh, but with the reformation of the autism category that occurs in the 1960s, all this psychological knowledge and ideas about child rights are, are shattered. And the formation of the new autism is part of this uh, shattering of earlier models of child development and it's through this transition that we see uh, the huge change in the meaning of the word autism, the metamorphosis of autism. Um, in the early decades of the 20th century autism is used to uh, define the early stages of thought, pre-conscious stages of thought uh, where it's assumed that infant thought is characterised by excessive fantasies, uh, imaginative thought, creative thought, hallucinatory thought. And from the 1960s onwards, you see this emergent new category of autism, 
the second autism, um, used more frequently as a diagnosis, but also used to describe the opposite of what it meant before. It's used to describe an impairment, and this is coming from the language of IQ testing, an impairment in imagination, an impairment in communication, an impairment in uh, social interaction. And leaving aside the legitimacy of that theory for the moment, it has a huge impact on the organisation of services for children. And to what extent is this a British story or a, a global history? Thanks, Aisha. That's, that's a great question. So uh, the book becomes a global history in the second half with the formation of, of the second autism. In the first half of the book, I very much focus on the British context. But I argue that it's work that's being conducted in Britain by British scientists, British psychologists, that has the biggest impact on the global definition of autism, which is then taken up in studies from Brazil to China to the USA, etc., particularly from the 1980s onwards. And this happens primarily via the publication of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in 1987, um, which becomes the sort of psychiatric Bible or the, the main um, psychological textbook which everyone turns to when they're conducting their scientific studies in the 80s and 90s. But the definition in that textbook, it's an American publication, but it's taken almost word for word from the work of Lorna Wing. And, uh, and, and Lorna Wing's impairment model, which I described earlier. And Lorna Wing's uh, triad of impairments, which is used in the DSM and then is used in all these other studies, develops out of a very, very um, unique intellectual culture in Britain, uh, which you know really takes off in the 60s and 70s. And I describe that intellectual culture in a lot of detail in the book. So what is going on at the Maudsley Hospital, at the Institute of Psychiatry, that enables Lorna Wing to come up with this definition, which can be used globally. You know, a lot of people write about the significance of Leo Kanner's work in uh, defining the category of autism. But Leo Kanner's work could never be used in any statistical study in any epidemiological study in any study which took place on a large scale which took place across cultures across countries his work couldn't be used in that way but Lorna Wing's work could you know one of the biggest uh, challenges to the psychological sciences all psychological sciences in the 1950s and 1960s occurs because of uh, institutional changes, in particular the closure of institutions which had been set up under eugenic laws, most of them, uh, and this happens in Britain, uh, for individuals classed with what was then termed mental deficiency. These institutions are closed down in the 1950s, as I said this happens in Britain, but it also happens in many other countries globally, and the work of Gil Ayal is incredibly informative in this context. But what happens in the British context is that scientists, and in particular Lorna Wing, um, you know, 
witness they see this um challenge to the psychological sciences because essentially many individuals who'd been um within these institutions had not been conceptualized within the psychological sciences they just hadn't so most uh, psychoanalytic theory most studies in child development hadn't included children who um were, were assumed to have low iq levels or who had registered um according to intelligence testing as having low iq levels so those children just simply were not included in many models of psychology from the early 20th century. And Lorna Wing is very aware of this. There are many uh, people working at the Maudsley who are, who are really aware of this conceptual problem in the psychological sciences. And Lorna Wing conducts a study in 1979. Uh, she writes a paper with uh, Judith Gould, Severe Impairments of Social Interaction and Associated Abnormalities in Children. And that paper uh, is really a defining moment. What she's attempting to do in that paper is to think about how to categorize a total population of children uh, based not only on intelligence, but also on um, their ability to interact socially. Now, if you remember, this sort of theory of ability to interact socially had been the domain of psychoanalysts. Nobody could, uh, you know, interfere in that domain or approach it in any other way. But Lorna Wing does. She says the way we do this is we conduct a, a, a total population study. We integrate all children, no matter what intelligence levels, and we look at the way that they interact socially. And it's that study which defines the autism category, which is then used within the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And Lorna Wing's work is, in, is hugely important. She hasn't uh, been recognised in the history of autism as much as she should have been. I think that is partly because she's a woman. But... Um, you know, in the book, I really emphasise the significance of the work that she's doing and the context that it's coming out of the Maudsley Hospital and the Institute of Psychiatry. So I'd like to ask you a little bit more about the changes that have occurred uh, since the 80s and, and during the 80s. What do you think accounts for the quite dramatic increase in um, cases? So a lot of that uh, increase can be attributed to the definition of autism in the uh, DSM-3R that can be traced back to Lorna Wing's work. Uh, that definition, the triad of impairments, is almost too um, formulaic. It, it, it's too perfect. And when uh, teachers, social workers, um, healthcare workers, uh, parents, other people come across this extremely formulaic definition of autism, um, you know, it's very rapidly taken up um, amongst all of these professionals, uh, you know, and, and, and parents and eventually individuals themselves as well. So uh, it's, a, you know, it, it, it's sort of a well-packaged category and it, 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 uh, this is part of the reason why it uh, then is taken up on a global scale and you see this increase in cases from the 80s and 90s. 
so obviously the concept of metamorphosis is central to your to your argument and to your book but could you just explain um, in a bit more detail what exactly the metamorphosis refers to what were the fundamental changes in understandings of autism so in the early decades of the 20th century autism um, and its sort of conceptual cousins which are autoerotism, which is where the concept originates from. Um, uh, Can you say a bit more about that? That's extremely Havelock. interesting. Well, that's, um, so that's a concept that's developed by Havelock Ellis and which is taken up by Freud. There is a big um, debate that takes place between Freud and Bloiler on the significance of sexuality to um, the early stages of infantile development and Freud obviously argues that sexuality is incredibly important um, and that instincts and drives are incredibly important to understanding psychology. Bloiler argues that it isn't um, and this is why he takes away the erot from autoerotism and makes it autism and that's the origin of the concept. Um, he's also drawing for, you know, it's not only Bloiler and, and Freud who are, who are discussing this and um, thinking about this at the time, uh, and there are many other um, writers as well in this period who are thinking about this early stages of development, how do we understand these early stages of development? And then Freud develops the concept of primary narcissism as a, a kind of counteract to uh, Bloiler's development of autism, um, and primary narcissism became, becomes very important within psychoanalytic theory in terms of understanding these early stages of development, and it's very important in the work of uh, Melanie Klein, Susan Isaacs, and others. But with the creation of uh, statistical and population-based studies of autism, which are also statistical and population-based studies of human relationships, um, you can see that this is part of a wider critique of psychological modelling generally. So to say that this concept cannot be applied in the way that it once was is a massive challenge to psychoanalytic thinking, it's a massive challenge to case-based thinking, it's a massive challenge to uh, drive psychology, instinct psychology. It's part of a bigger um, overhaul and challenge to earlier psychological sciences and earlier theories of child development in Piaget and Susan Isaacs and Melanie Klein in uh, Anna Freud. All of these theories are challenged with this new concept of autism. And you make the, the point in your introduction that unlike a number of other uh, conditions such as anxiety or depression, there's not a pharmaceutical um, sort of incentive or drive uh, with, with treatment and sort of there's not the pharmaceutical incentive to uh, perhaps increase uh, rates of diagnosis. So with autism, what is, what, how does uh, treatment um, sort of enter enter the story. I think that I think that that's one of the most interesting things about autism. So every other condition that you that that when one witnesses arise in the twentieth century. So, for example, uh, depression, ADHD. Every other condition is associated with a, a, a drug. You know that there there can be an argument made that pharmaceutical companies are wanting to promote an illness in a particular way um, or a condition in a particular way. Uh, but with autism, it is not 
the case at all. That that's what's so interesting about it. How can it be that this this diagnosis suddenly began to thrive? But the argument that I make is because it had always been so fundamental, because it was such a critical concept in all ideas of child development, and because you know it becomes so political when it gets reframed, it gets taken up um, by groups to um, as something which is important for supporting um, child development. Because one would have thought that uh, there's also a resistance, possibly from parents or from individuals uh, themselves who have been given the diagnosis because of uh, stigma which may be attached to it. And again, in the absence of a pharmaceutical treatment, what what are the the reasons for them uh, for parents in particular wanting their children to receive a diagnosis and sort of helping the the sort of uh, the category. Um, reach the proportions that, that it does is it is it specifically to do with um, educational um, sort of f- f- facilities or is there something is there something more I mean that there, there was definitely from the 60s well in the 1960s it was very clear that if a child received an autism diagnosis in that period they were given access to services that no other children had access to and until 1970 in Britain that many children would have been kind of educated within hospital um, within hospitals rather than within the education system per se. So in 1960, it was incredibly important to receive that diagnosis for a child to get any any kind of additional support. And it becomes such an important political category because of that, because it ensures educational rights, um, social care rights and... Uh, general child rights and later on adult rights as well you know it's a very important diagnosis in relation to the rise of individualism it it thrives as a diagnosis under Thatcher it thrives under Reagan it's used as a, a way to carve out a unique form of protection for particular children who are considered to be developing in an atypical way. And and it's in that regard that it's very different from um, models of the construction of child rights in relation to earlier uh, versions of psychology that I describe in the first half of the book. Uh, the second autism, the diagnosis that increases rapidly in the 80s and 90s, enables new and very interesting political models of how rights should be assigned to individuals or groups based on abilities or disabilities. And uh, the growth of the neurodiversity movement is a very interesting example of where um, those debates and discussions um, have headed. So what remains un- unknown? So what f- future research do you think is needed in this area? So I recently organised a conference on the globalisation of autism, which was held at Queen Mary University last year. And the reason I did that is because I think that the areas in which this work can develop now um, are most, well, will be most productive uh, in a global context. And I think that it will be very useful for groups to come um, together internationally to think about how the concepts developed in different concepts. Uh, And, you know, there there were many questions that were raised uh, there, for example, um, why is it that in the Czech Republic, for example, um, autism rates begin to increase as communism falls? Um, there are 
political, you know, very strong political um, undercurrents to the way that the diagnosis develops and, and the way the concept develops in particular, um, particular international contexts. Uh, so in France as well, there's a lot of really interesting work that's being done um, and that, you know, more work will be done um, on this, looking at why there was a resistance to the kind of impairment category and Lorna Wing's work was not taken up um, within France, whereas it was taken up in many other contexts in China and in the USA and, and elsewhere. Why is there this very strong resistance um, in France? Um, there's a researcher, Matthias Winter, who's doing some really interesting work on that. Uh, and, and, you know, in thinking about that, there are these wider issues around uh, um, around you know how child development is considered and perceived in different areas and who makes judgments about uh, um, what's what's typical or not so there's also some really interesting work um, in India by Bishamadev Chakrabarti who's doing an epidemiological study now in India and through doing that you know coming to grips with many of the um, similar issues that had been addressed at other points in, in the history of, of autism in Britain. Uh, so it, I think kind of, you know, for historians to engage with anthropologists, scientific researchers and others is actually a really, really positive and um, uh, useful way to reframe how we think about the history and, and how child development gets reconsidered in different contexts. Absolutely, and your conference and the, the general growing field of the medical humanities is a sort of perfect forum uh, for those collaborative um, research. Yeah, there's also, together. yeah, there's also another, sorry to interrupt, but there's also another um, thing that I was going to mention, and there's a new um, edition of Psychoanalysis and History coming out on uh, disability and psychoanalysis, and I think that's also another area where this research can really develop and where it, it can go in the future and I've contributed um, to that volume um, because there is a big question around why is it that learning disabilities and um, weren't integrated into psychoanalytic theory in the late 20th century and what does that mean for psychoanalytic theory what does that mean um, for psycholo psychology and how psychology develops so there's another you know field that can develop around that I think. Brilliant. We look forward to reading that contribution as well. So what are you working on now and what are you working on next? So I've just started a new uh, collaborative project in the film department at Queen Mary where I'm working with the amazing uh, Janet Harbord and the also amazing Stephen Eastwood. And uh, Janet Harbord has written um, quite a lot on the history of film and psychology. She's written an amazing recent book, uh, Eccentric Cinema, uh, Stephen Eastwood is a filmmaker and a critical um, you know, film studies thinker as well. And uh, the project that I'm working with um, them on is called Autism Through Cinema. And in that project, we are exploring how cinematic and film representations of autism have influenced scientific um understandings of autism and, and vice versa. So how have the psychological sciences impact uh, visual media and, and and how does that happen in reverse as well? So the, the project is really looking at the visual archive of autism and psychology and it's addressing some of the questions that I addressed in 
the book around the change in the meaning of autism, um, how this influences wider theories of child development, but instead of looking at this through language and conceptually, um, I'll be looking at this through exploring uh, cinema and, and film archives, and I've already started doing um, some of that work. Uh, but I've only just begun the project. But it's it's uh, you know, it's really exciting project. We've got lots of things planned uh, for the future. So that's uh, what's happening now. Bonnie, thank you very much. It's been brilliant talking to you today. Thank you, Aisha. <laughs>